knowing, knowing what a person believes reveals a lot about how they will then live. That's a fairly straightforward statement. Knowing what a person believes reveals a lot about how they will live, even if a person is unable to articulate what they believe. And there, there aren't many people who are actually able to sit down with you and say, this is my worldview. These are the things that I value. These are the things that motivate me, things that I'm passionate about. Some of us can do that. Many of us cannot. It, it works in reverse, too, if you think about it. And it might even be more revealing. If instead asking first what a person believes and watching what they do based on that belief, sometimes it's more revealing in reverse. Watching what somebody does. And then from there, deducing what they believe. If situation X occurs and I respond in a particular way, for anybody observing, they're going to be able to evaluate something about me relative to situation X. And if a friend is standing next to me and she responds differently than I do to situation X, you, you can then begin again to deduce that, oh, these two people, though looking at the exact same situation, have different belief systems. Th that's fair. Consider the historical example of one of my heroes, a Jewish rabbi, that I was introduced to, the, whose writings I was introduced to in college that literally changed my life. And I have most everything he has written, and I've read most of everything that he's written. Uh, rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel is his name. And in March of 1965, Heschel joined. It's an iconic picture. I don't know if you've seen it, uh, perhaps, given the fact that tomorrow's Martin Luther King Jr. Day, a federal holiday, you, you perhaps have seen images of him or heard clips from some of the things that he has said over the years. There's an iconic picture, many, obviously, uh, but the one particularly of which I speak now has Rabbi Heschel arm in arm with King, uh, on the march, the voting rights march from Selma to Montgomery. Heschel famously was quoted as saying that while marching, my feet were praying. You could, you could tell the belief system of the rabbi based on what he was doing. And even more so when he said when interviewed after the march with King, that while marching, my feet were praying. In other words, I, I was putting my religion into practice. And rather than simply, though importantly, being in a closet praying, my praying in a closet moved me to march. And so for Heschel, Marching was a form of praying. That's moving by almost any account. This is an example that strikes me of what the Apostle Paul 
teaches in Romans 12, 1 and 2. A, a passage that, be, that can be summed up as all good theology ends in ethics. I had a professor in college who used to say that to us all the time. Your theology is no good if it doesn't end in action. All good theology ends in ethics. In other words, if you're sitting in a tower somewhere or locked up in an office and you're writing theological book after theological book and it doesn't move you to action, then your theology is worthless. Paul would say the same thing. Heschel would say the same thing. King would say the same thing. I can tell you, you can tell of me how good my theology is by what I do whether you have a theology at all. And we all are theologians, in the words of the late, great R.C. Sproul. We're all theologians, whether we can write a book or not. We all have a belief about God. We all have a belief about Jesus. We all have a belief about man. We all have a belief about the world and creation. We're all theologians. This morning, we're going to look carefully at one verse. Now, I, I want you to hear me here. Because I flipped all over the place last night in my bed, and I woke up very early this morning and finally got the outline that I think I needed to get from the Lord. The sermon that I had written by the end of the day yesterday was way too complex. Even I knew it. The Lord said, bite size. He said, slow it down, make it small. So what I'm going to do is take three weeks to preach you one verse. Romans 12, 2 breaks very clearly into three pieces. Do not, but do so that. There's your three points. And I'm not the three points in a poem guy. Do not be conformed to this world. That's today's sermon. Next week, God willing, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Two weeks from today, God willing, so that you'll be able to test and approve God's will, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Okay? So that, that's my approach. And I, I ask you to bear with me, to be patient with me, and to receive it as love. Because I thought, what are they going to say? What are they going to do when they look at me and I tell them I'm going to take three sermons to preach one verse? They're going to, oh, just get on with it, will you? I'm, so I'm running that risk of you doing that. But I also want you to feel from me, the importance of this single verse, especially now. You know that I had bemoaned the fact that the pandemic, you know, in my little world, the pandemic blew up my preaching schedule in 2020. Wah, wah, wah. But as providence would have it, here we are, and this is the text that has just fallen to us in this place. And so I'm appealing, in view of God's mercies, to lean in with me. 
because God's about something here. Because my emotions are as tight as they've been in a long time. This week, do not be. Next week, instead, be this. Two weeks, all of that, so that you'll be able to. Okay? Simple. One point for the next three weeks. Do not be conformed to this world. It's a command. It's an imperative. It's a present form imperative, meaning it's going on right now. Last week, this is the only point today, do not be conformed to this world. Last week, we focused on Paul's appeal. He appeals. He doesn't walk around with a stick. He doesn't command. He appeals. I'm appealing to you which is exactly what I'm doing right now. I'm appealing to you. I don't want to fight you. I don't want to yell at you. I'm in the same boat that you are. I'm appealing to you. And I'm not appealing on my charisma. I'm appealing to you by the mercies of God because it's the only thing that's keeping us alive right now. We focused on Paul's appeal in light of the mercies of God. And I gave you a small catalog of those mercies that Paul had outlined in Romans 1 to 11 that got him to Romans 12, 1. And you remember, uh, the mercy of the gospel that we have received, the mercy of justification that we've received, the mercy of the love of God that we've been given, the mercy of union with Christ, the mercy of being indwelt by the spirit of the living God in view of all of those things and many things more, I appeal to you. I appeal. In light of these mercies, we've learned that we are commanded, now we're commanded to and able to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. Horse and cart, the mercies allow us to offer You don't offer in order to get the mercies. It's the other way around. Like I say to you regularly, if you seek to offer to get the mercy of God, then you lose the entirety of Christianity. It's in light of these mercies that you offer. It's in light of the mercies that you're able to offer. Otherwise, you're a train wreck. You will be fatally successful possibly. In, in, in a quick review of, of the things that I, I taught last week, I, I came across these verses, and I wanted to share them with you because they're, they speak exactly to the situation. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. It's the, it's the well-known benediction. You'll see my point. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing that you may do his will, working in us, which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This idea of being able to please God. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy. Uh, the ESV says acceptable. It's dull. They, they need a little bit more vibrancy. Pleasing 
It's at the root of the word, pleasing, holy and pleasing. In other words, you can please God. You can because of his mercies. And what I just read for you in Hebrews 13, 20 and 21 tells us that the shed blood of Jesus Christ is what pleases the Father. And if you're covered by that blood, you're pleasing to him. We need to be away with this lousy theology that says even regenerated Christians can't please God. And we quote Jeremiah as all of our works being as filthy rags. It's a grotesque use of the verse ripped out of its context. The regenerated person can please God. Your works are not filthy rags. our lives. That's the whole body worship. And we talked about that. The bedroom and the boardroom and the bathroom. These are all places where you offer your body as a living sacrifice toward others, holy and pleasing to God. This is our spiritual worship. Unlike creation that worships, the trees of the field clap their hands. The rocks cry out to the Lord, but they do so unreflectively. That's the difference. One of the differences between the creation and you and me is that our worship, spiritual as it is, is reflective, contemplative, if you please. Thinking worship. The trees don't think. We do. That's what makes our worship different from the worship of creation. That we fulfill the offering to the Lord. This is our reflective worship. And now this sets the stage for the two life-defining commands, the first of which we will look at today. And it's, it's negative. Do not do this. Next week, do this. This week, do not do this. Reflective worship will not be conformed to this world or to this age. It's the first third of Romans 12, too. Reflective worship, spiritual worship, will not conform to this age. Hence Paul's present command, do not be conformed to the pattern of this age or to this world. In other words, as you've heard me say to you in the past, Paul's saying, stop being conformed to the pattern of this age. I'm so grateful, as I said to you last week, I'm so grateful for this verse because Paul fully realizes the enormous pressure to conform to the pattern of the world in which we live. Paul realizes it's going on. I mean, you're talking about Rome. And I, I ask you to draw the, draw the parallel between New York City and Rome. Paul's speaking to people in the hub of the universe, So he knows the massive influence that Rome has. Rome's moral environment, Rome's politics, all pressing, pressing, pressing on the house churches in Rome. And Paul's saying, stop. But as I've said to you forever in a day, we never get commanded to stop. We never get commanded to do something unless we're enabled to do those things. I appeal to you by the mercies of God. Stop being conformed to the pattern of this age. Reflective worship will not be conformed to this world. 
Here's one English translation. Don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world. Another English translation goes like this. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Pastor, you don't know how hard this is. Yeah, I do. This is where I can say, yeah, I do. And I've, if I can be so plain, I've had a round or two with the Lord on this. And he sweetly and gently reminds me all the time, I don't command you to do anything I don't enable you to do. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Because part of the reason why my emotions are running as high as they are is because these verses are just ripping me up in a glorious way. Nobody likes to have the surgery, but the healing that comes with the surgery, my, my, my. Present tense, it's happening as we speak. And so we must be alert to the subtlety. This is why I wanted to take a whole section of time just to talk about this one element because it would have been the first of three points and we would have been out of here and we would have thought, yeah, okay, I'll I'll stop being conformed to the past. I want to drill down a little bit. I want us to be impacted by the one point because in my limited vision right now, I'm not entirely sure there's something more important than I can say to you today, given everything that's in front of us for the coming week. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. We must be alert to the subtlety of conformity. Conforming, as I mentioned last week, is a lifelong process. It's a pattern. It's, a, it's in, the writer, in the words of the writer Eugene Peterson, it's a long obedience in the same direction. That's true of our transformation as well. More on that next week. But conforming to the pattern of this age does not happen overnight. I said that to you last week. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, today I'm going to be an addict. No, you get to the place where you admit you're an addict because of your past history. Because of the collective force of a million little things that have coalesced over a prolonged period of time. That's how you conform. Nobody wakes up in the morning and said, today I'm going to be conformed to the pattern of this world. It is instilled, as I said last week, it is instilled by our family of origin. There's no getting around it. There's no getting around it. I have my mother and my father in me. My daughter has me in her. God help her. Thankfully, she's got some of her mother in her, too. You have your mother and father in you as well, but they're not the reason why you have done X, Y, and Z. I'm going to be very, I'm a counselor here. I'm going to be very, very careful with that because family of origin issues can be very complex. By our workplaces. There's a 
there's a corporate ethos. I worked for five years at General Electric. To this day, I can remember a T-shirt that they gave to us in a corporate meeting. Pride in workmanship is the key to qualitivity. How many years ago was that? But that was the vision for that year. And here we are all in this auditorium, and we all get the GE blue and white T-shirts. Pride and workmanship is the key to qualitivity. And that's what they wanted me to drink down and believe. So we're in our workplaces, in our schools. This school conforms children. Our neighborhoods. Living in Dongan Hills is an entirely different neighborhood than St. Charles, which is entirely different from Tottenville. Each of those geographic locales here on Staten Island shapes the people who live there, as does wide angle Staten Island itself. Wider angle, New York City itself. Wider angle, New York State. Wider angle, this nation. has conforming power. We're conformed by the programs that we watch, the social media that we consume. I shut my Twitter off middle of the week. I was, I was done. I couldn't think straight. And I had to be prepared for you. I did that for you. We're conformed by the music we listen to. This one's an easy one. You're in the elevator and Muzak is playing and a song you haven't heard for 57 years. And that's all you can think about for the next three days. And you never once bought that album. But it's in the air that you breathe and you know every word to the entire song. That's a small example. But it's not just in the music, it's in other things as well that you can spit out. You'll be amazed at how many lines from the, from the sitcom MASH I can just spew out because I've watched it so much. The movies that you love, you can do entire scenes. Let me poke at you right here. Can you do that with the Bible? Oh, Exodus. Oh, Ferris Bueller's day off? Oh, man, that was a crazy scene, wasn't it? What about Leviticus? That's what I'm talking about with regard to conforming power. We are being trained. Watch this. This, this was an amazing thing for me this week. This was, this was a new thing for me this week when I, when I made these connections with, with these two words. We're trained. Watch this. 2 Peter. 2 Peter 2.14. Peter speaking about false prophets and false teachers, many of whom are still roaming around the streets of America. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin, they entice unsteady souls. Now watch this. They have hearts trained in greed. There was a stunning statement to me that makes the point brilliantly. You don't wake up in the morning and say, today I'm going to be greedy. You're trained in it. 
So, so I, I ran this exercise, this own, my own diag diagnos diagnosis of my own soul. What am I trained in? You are trained in blank. Now fill in the blank with me. Peter gives us an example of an entire cohort of people that are trained in greed. What are you trained in? Now, here's the, here's the or. We're either trained in greed or we're trained in godliness. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 14. Solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment, we're going to talk about discernment in a couple of weeks. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by, by how? By constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And as I said to my wife last night, I said, it's, it's more than just distinguishing between good and evil. It's distinguishing between good and better. It's distinguishing between better and best. But you have to be trained in doing that. Anthony Barone regularly uses this illustration in his teaching. And it's a very familiar one that many of you know about how they used to. I don't know if they still do it. How they teach bank tellers to, to tell the real money and the counterfeit. You would think, well, put them in a room with a whole bunch of real money. Let them feel it. No, no, no. They, they used to bring bank tellers in and let them feel the counterfeit. Am I telling that right? It's in reverse. It's the other way around. I, I apologize. Feel the real so that when you then feel a counterfeit, you now know what it is. That's what this is illustrating right here in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 14. You touch and feel and are around the real long enough, you'll know when a counterfeit comes into your orbit. And that I put out for your consideration is a massive part of the problem in the churches in America right now. We are biblically illiterate, don't know what the real thing is, and so we're gulping down theory after theory after theory that have nothing to do with the kingdom of God. And it breaks my heart because I'm a pastor and I'm responsible to build the word of God in you. And to watch people in the name of Jesus going every which way with every wind that blows is gut-wrenching. I failed. Is God judging the church? Is he exposing us? and are trifling with him, chasing after the things of this age. We're either trained in greed or we're trained in godliness. But make no mistake about it. You're sitting here right now. You're being trained. I don't know how effectively. And because conforming is so often subtle, 
it is incredibly difficult to discern. And it is not overcome in a 30-minute sermon. It's like asking a fish to describe water. We are fish in a culture that you can't describe because it's so close. It takes a prophet to speak into it. It takes somebody from outside, not in this fishbowl, but in another one, to be able to critique another culture. Which is why, sobering as it may be, and angering perhaps to some of you, there is now an international movement, missionary movement, where other nations are sending missionaries to America. What used to be the single greatest nation of sending missionaries to the world now is a receiver. And we must ask ourselves, why? What is the rest of the world seeing outside of our fishbowl that says they need the gospel? famous screw tape letters, letter 12, wrote what, in my opinion, is one of the most astounding paragraphs in his work. Screw tape letters, as you know, messes with your head because it's in reverse. And a senior demon is training a junior demon in ways to get to Christians and separate them from the enemy, God. This is what Lewis writes. You will say that these are very small sins. And doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. The enemy being God. It's in reverse now. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect, their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than card playing, allow for the datedness. Murder is no better than card playing if card playing will do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Get them to conform to the pattern of this age and do it slowly and they'll never, ever know. I'm trying. 
And I want to ask you the question, what then are the biblical characteristics of this age? Let me help you. The biblical characteristics of this age. Here's what the Bible says about the world, about where you live, about the air that you and I breathe. Keeping in mind now, this is only the negative side of the equation. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2 that the world is under the control of the evil one. Every one of these statements, biblical statements, is sobering. Yes, we preach and believe that Jesus is the king and that he reigns. His kingdom is coming and will come. But in the meantime, in the providence of God, this world that we know it is under the control of the evil one. So don't think for a moment when you, like me, go home this afternoon and turn on the NFL and you watch commercials and then you stay on and watch 60 Minutes and then you stay on and you watch CSI. Don't think for a minute there's not an agenda there. of the evil one, Ephesians 2.2. 2. That's part of the reason why, glory be to God, we read the temptation of Jesus this morning. It's one of the most political statements in the New Testament. And a reflection of this teaching by Paul in Ephesians, where the enemy took him up onto the mountain and said, look at all of these kingdoms. I don't, don't ask me to explain all of how it went down. And said, don't forget now, he's the father of lies, so we don't know how much truth is being shared here. But see, but that's what he says. He says to Jesus, all of this, all of this can be yours. All of this can be yours if you just bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, hit the bricks. But it's such a profound and telling expression that to some extent, the enemy has control of the kingdoms of this world. Another biblical characteristic of this age is that it's referred to in Colossians 1.13 as the domain of darkness. This all sounds rather gloomy. Hang in there with me. You're going to get more, to, more next week, the good Lord willing. But I'm speaking forthrightly from the word of God to alert you to the fact that your world, my world, our world is not neutral. There's an agenda. There are powers and principalities that are at work here right now. In the video games this 14-year-old plays, in the programs that I watch, in my Twitter feed, if I'm not looking at things with a sanctified imagination, I'm taking a small step. I'm imbibing a worldview that is anti-God. A third characteristic of this age is that it's not from God, 1 John 2.15. It is not from God, and it is passing away. John says directly, do not love the world. So, if you are counting on the things of the world to give you final comfort and final security, 
Not that these things cannot be redeemed. I'm not saying that. You're going to get much more of that next week, God willing. But what I am saying to you is if that's where your treasure is, you're going to be disappointed. It is under the control of the evil one. It is the domain of darkness. It is not from God. It is passing away. And this is how exactly how Jesus summarizes it in John chapter 18, in verse 35, in his confrontation with Pilate, John 18, 35, Pilate answers, am I a Jew? Your own nation, listen to that, listen to that, your own nation have delivered you over to me. What have you done? I mean, you want to talk about getting political. I mean, you would expect that out of Pilate's mouth, right? So Pilate, looking at Jesus, said, your own nation sent you to me. This is what Jesus said. This is what Jesus said about his nation sending him. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, watch this, and you tell me if there's not another verse in the Bible that speaks directly to our situation. You, you tell me. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said, so you are a king. Jesus said, you said that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born. For this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus lays aside national allegiances and says, not my business at the end of the day. My kingdom is not, is not in the political, governmental realm. Though it does influence it, and though it does speak to it, my kingdom is not of this world. And then he says, if it was of this world, then my followers would be doing what the world would do when their agenda is not getting accepted. They will turn violent. And Jesus said, observe, my people are not doing that. And we're talking about now the machine of Rome that's devouring Christians. And Jesus said, violence is not the way my people are going to go. I'm done. If this is true, then how are we to think about pro-life issues? How are we to think about abortion? How are we to think about homosexuality? Now, I think it's a reasonably safe bet to say that Nobody in this room will object to me asking those two questions. Inwardly, you're cheering me on. We must be against abortion. We must be against the, re the redefining of marriage. Yes. But then what if I did this? How are we to think about 
pro-life issues like racism and immigration. Now I'm guessing, being on Staten Island, that I'm wandering into areas where I may not want to be wandering because those are not our pro-life issues. And, and here's where I want to finish. I want to finish here because my wife and I were in a conference in early March, just before all of this broke. And we sat under the guidance of a dear African-American brother named Justin Gibney. Justin is the chairman of the AND campaign. He's a dyed-in-the-wool evangelical, fiery preacher. And he said one thing, and he kept banging that one-note drum. And this is what he said. He said, to be all in, in either party, is intellectually lazy and unfair. He said, because both parties have strengths and weaknesses. He said, so the right ought to be pressed to raise in their agenda racial issues. The left ought to be pressed on their agenda to understand that there is something called absolute truth and sanctity of life. I was numb for a few days because I had never heard it put that way before because his fundamental line was very simple. He said, if your party affiliation finds nothing critiquable when put under the lens of the kingdom of God, then you're worshiping a false idol. God. Cynicism, it does not mean we are not involved. It does not mean by any means that we're indifferent. It does mean that with broken-hearted joy, broken-hearted joy, we must weep. out for transforming. Age. And because Christians are instead people, instead be transformed by the renewing of your minds.
Father, and I'm grateful for the patience of your saints. Father, with broken-hearted joy. And teach us, Father, to weep, even to lament. You've given us a book filled with those things. And I pray that today would be the beginning of a new pattern that would break us from conformity to the pattern of this present world. And that if even in a small way, a cumulative effect might begin to take place, leading to our own transformation by the renewing of our minds. God help us. In the name of Jesus, I ask this. Amen.